Two and a Half Admins, episode 13. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, a couple of plugs. The Open ZFS Developer Summit. This is something you're speaking at, Alan? Uh, yeah. Uh, and there's lots of other talks and it's open to everyone. So if you want to know what's going to be coming up in ZFS over the next year, it's a great time to uh, watch what's happening. And there's also a hackathon on the second day. So if you want to get involved, uh, we have teams working on everything from very basic stuff up through what's going to be the next big drive in development. Yeah, and this is October 6th and 7th, so that's pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, All Things Open 2020. Yeah, that's a show that I've been involved with for a long time now. It's a big show. We've got 175 talks scheduled this year. Um, it will be all online this time, thanks to COVID. And uh, registration ranges from free on up from there. Right, a bit of news then. The first one is Tiger Lake. This is something you wanted to talk about, Jim. You've written a couple of articles about that over the last couple of months. And uh, it's here finally in laptops, or at least it's been announced. It's been announced um, in theory that there are Tiger Lake laptops available for purchase like right now from Dell. Um, I haven't actually tried to hit the store and find one. I've I've heard some people saying they went and they, they couldn't find them actually listed yet. Um, but it's just literally a this week thing. But you did get hold of a prototype. Yes. Now, I have personally had my hands on Tiger Lake. I had a prototype system. And um, it's it's a pretty interesting system. Intel is finally managing to claw some of their own back from AMD. Um, it's not really a Ryzen 4000 killer. AMD has absolutely still got the lead when it comes to raw CPU horsepower and the mobile form factor. But for the first time ever, uh, Intel actually has the leading GPU. So that's pretty cool. That's a, a big step. Like I know they've been working towards having a discrete GPU, uh, but seeing the embedded ones actually starting to to get somewhere is definitely interesting. Yeah, exactly. I, I've you know I've been pretty interested in their uh, their XE GPU program since they first announced it, and it kind of you know went pretty quietly under the radar. But I was like, this is potentially a big deal, and. Um, the the discrete, you know, workstation level cards didn't really perform all that well. And most people were like, ah, this is going to be nothing. But now Tiger Lake comes out and I mean, they now literally have the best performing integrated GPU in the world. And the whole concept about XE from day one has been that it's supposed to scale to cover the entire spectrum from integrated GPUs up to desktop and all the way up into these, you know, big data center monsters competing directly with NVIDIA. So seeing them in, you know, what seems like a pretty short time, take that performance crown away from AMD, you know, down here on the low end, it it feels to me like that makes a pretty big statement about where that platform is headed. So how much better is the graphics compared to the older generations then? The answer there is, you know, the UHD graphics, which is what it was all the way up until but not including Ice Lake was fine for desktop stuff. Like, you know, if you're a Joe Ressington and your idea of a GPU workout is watching a YouTube video, it's going to be great. (laughs) You're going to be like, this is fantastic. Why would anybody want anything else? But the minute you start trying to do something that really needs GPU resources, you know, like gaming or or what have you, it's going to bog down really fast and really badly. Now, Ice Lake used, uh, that was, they they called it Iris Plus graphics in the, the 10th generation Ice Lake. And that was already a very significant improvement. I mean, Ice Lake was about twice as fast as UHD 620, but it was still about half again, you know, slower than competing AMD Vega chipsets, you know, integrated GPUs. Now with Tiger Lake and Iris XE, 
they're looking at a pretty healthy, like 30% bump up over what had formerly been the industry leader, the AMD Vega. So one thing from your article about Tiger Lake that jumped out at me was that you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You could get the same i7 CPU, but it could be different TDPs, and you could therefore have significantly different performance. Yeah. Now, to be fair, that has actually been the case for a while now. Um, For several years, mobile processors have had, uh, they call it CDDP, configurable thermal design power. And, um, you know, usually you'll, you'll hear, sometimes if you read sufficiently detailed technical papers, you'll see terms like TDP up and TDP down. And that means using the bottom or the top of the range of configurable thermal design power. And um, a laptop manufacturer might only include enough cooling for, you know, a 15-watt thermal load. And if they do that, then they're going to limit the chip to 15 watts, right? On the other hand, you might have a, uh, a laptop that's more aimed at performance and the hell with your battery life. And, you know, they put big honking fans and heat sinks in it and, you know, configured all the way to the top of the range at... Um, with the new Tiger Lake, the top of the range is 28 watts thermal design power, but like Intel had M-series CPUs back around uh, like the fifth generation, and you would see some of those laptops with the M-series CPUs with a whopping 38 watt thermal design power. So those things, like if you go looking on Amazon or Newegg or eBay looking at refurbs, you'll find some of those things still from, you know, like the fourth generation M series, you know, getting hawked now and you go and you look like, like on Passmark and you compare them to modern CPUs and you're like, well, this isn't bad. Like this is actually almost as good as, you know, newer budget CPUs. But the difference is that thermal design power because those brand new, you know, budget CPUs are doing the same job at 15 watts or 12 watts that, you know, those things were with 37 or 38. Yeah, like my 7th gen uh, i7 and my X270 has the up-down TDP thing. And so as long as you stay at 1.5 gigahertz or less, it uses 15 watts and you get tons of battery life and it works great for web browsing and, and productivity stuff. But if you start doing heavy stuff like trying to game or in my case, you know, compile a bunch of source code, basically using the speed step stuff, you can decide whether you want to kick up to use the 28 watts and, you know, rob your battery and, you know, the laptop starts getting hot and the fan has to run really hard. But you you kind of, you have this configurableness and you can decide whether you want to have the task take longer uh, and probably in the end use more battery or boost up to the, the full 20 something watts for a minute or two and get the job done and then go back to being in the low power range and be able to have the battery last longer. Yeah. And to be clear, and, you know, going back to Joe's thing about, you know, the, the thermal design power leaping out at him, it was a little bit controversial that Intel, you know, shipped these prototypes out configured for 28 watt thermal design power, because it's not the way we're going to see most of them out in the wild. Most of the sleek laptops that people are, you know, looking for out there, they're usually targeting a 15 watt envelope. So you're going to be looking at, you know, whether you're talking about Intel or AMD, you're looking at 15 watt processors in most of these things. And the performance level of that same chip at 15 watt, it's a big decrease. So at 28 watts, it was basically hanging about equal with a uh, Ryzen 7 4700U which is not even the top of the line for the Ryzen U series. But when you limit it to the same 15 watts that that Ryzen 7 was, now it's not hanging with it anymore. Except, again, in graphics. Now, for GPU performance, even limited to 15 watts still beats competition. And so what are we talking here? Like five-year-old games, 10-year-old games? 
it might be a little bit more instructive to instead say that, um, you know, you used to see a whole bunch of not top of the line laptops, but just kind of midline that would have discrete NVIDIA GPUs. And, you know, they wouldn't be super duper gamer tastic to be like a GeForce 950M or whatever. Mm. And I think that the death knell has officially sounded for those low end discrete NVIDIA laptop GPUs. Right. Yeah. Like my T530 had a Quattro NVIDIA GPU in it because it had to be able to do CAD like workloads and you just couldn't do that with the embedded graphics. But now that they're good enough, there's no reason to waste battery on a discrete GPU. I think it's going to be to the point now that we're we're probably going to start only seeing discrete GPUs in, you know, I, I don't want to say just gaming laptops because there's always going to be some, you know, like luxury premium, whatever. But I think you're only going to be seeing gaming NVIDIA chipsets show up in laptops, you know, like the RTX 2060 mobile or what have you. The other thing, you know, we talked about how once you get it to, you know, a direct apples to apples comparison with TDP, Tiger Lake doesn't really hang with the uh, Ryzen 4000 series. Uh, the other thing that's maybe worth talking about with that is that this generation at least doesn't have a whole lot of cores available. The highest end part for uh, Tiger Lake is the i7-1185G7, and that is only four cores and eight threads. Whereas, you know, you've, you've got uh, Ryzen 4000 CPUs that are eight cores and 16 threads. So it's a pretty big discrepancy to catch up from. But I think Intel is going to continue improving this line pretty easily. Uh, I think this definitely represents them beginning to catch up with their competition again. All right. Well, something I've been following for months, and it's mostly being covered in the register, and that is what's going on with the .uk domains. Of course, we're used to .co.uk, but there is also recently the .uk, and a bunch of those got assigned to people without them even realizing, got registered for them because they had a .co.uk, and then they got a year for free, and then suddenly they started getting invoices for the .uk, and they're like, what's going on with this? And um, it actually gets worse than that. Nominet, who is uh, the body responsible for these, seems to have made a lot of mistakes, shall we say. The one thing that really jumps out at me about all this, Joe, is that it's it's real estate shenanigans, you know? I mean, this is the same crap you see out of real estate developers, uh, you know, grabbing parcels of land as they come available in less than entirely ethical means. It's the same crap all over again with domain names. I, I think in a lot of cases, it's probably even the same people. Nothing new under the sun, man. This is slightly different than the, the old renewal scam you used to see in the early dot-com days where, you know, you get an invoice in the mail from not your registrar, just some other registrar uh, for probably a lot more money than you were normally going to pay to renew the domain. Uh, and people would fall for it because they just got an invoice in the mail for their .com. And so they pay it so that their .com doesn't expire. And they don't realize that they just transferred their domain to some sketchy place that's going to charge them even more for renewal next year. What do you mean old days? You know, like yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get those in the snail mail anymore. Oh, yeah. I haven't gotten those in snail mail for a while, but they come in with just depressing regularity, you know, in, in email attempts. Yeah, well, most of that gets picked off by the spam filter and so on. But I remember getting physical ones in the mail and being like, I know a lot of dumb people that are going to fall for this kind of nonsense. I don't want to be pejorative about it. I know a lot of people who have fallen for that nonsense. I'm not going to call them dumb. Yeah, um, I right. don't agree that the spam filters pick off the majority of those. In my experience, they absolutely do not. And I have had clients you know, pay $300 to renew a domain with a different registrar 
many, many times. Um, not as many times as they've asked me about it. And I've been like, no, 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 please throw that away. But yeah, it totally happens. Yeah. And you're always a little worried about telling them to throw it away because it's like years from now when they get the real one from the real registrar, they're going to throw it away. <laughs> but if I'm ever not the one managing it for them, it's going to cause havoc. Or they buy one of those. Uh, I, I had a client buy one of those fake. Um, I think it was GoDaddy doing the, you know, like pay your hundred year domain registration now thing, which, you know, it, it's not even possible. You can't do that. All you're really doing is giving GoDaddy this honking great sum of money. And they're basically promising to keep renewing it every year until a century has gone by, which that seems like a pretty freaking dumb bet. I mean, how many companies come and go in a century? What are the odds that either yours or GoDaddy will be around unchanged in 2120? Yeah, or that the DNS infrastructure is going to be like the Whois database has lasted and I don't see it going away, but I wouldn't bet on a hundred years from now we're still doing it that way. There is a small chance though in a hundred years that IPv6 will be the standard. No, there isn't. <laughs> Either we won't switch to it or we will switch to it and switch away before then. Oh yeah, good point. But if you read these register articles, and we'll link to three of them, Nominate does not look good. No. It, it's just a, a catalogue of either incompetence or something worse. And I, I want to believe it's incompetence because... Nah. It, it just... How, how can this be allowed to happen? Like, they have this weird voting system that is based on how many domains each registrar has sold to people. It would be like if you did shareholder voting, but it was based on like which bank the shareholders had their shares with. So like your bank votes for you in the shareholder vote, not you who actually owns the share. Yeah. It's weird. And yeah, so like uh, one, two, three reg and one and one have like half of all the domains and like GoDaddy has... 5.3 million domains, whereas the average uh, for dominant people is to get 5,000 votes, and GoDaddy gets 5 million. Yeah, well, 123Reg is owned by GoDaddy, of course. Ah. So that's uh, where they've got their power. But even some of these elections for board seats and stuff seem to have been, uh, well, again, at best, incompetently managed, where the votes were counted incorrectly. And then they have somehow managed to change the rules of voting so it's so complicated that virtually no one understands it and how it all works. And then the worst thing is that there was this public forum where members could talk to each other and the public and they just shut it down. Like they had this conference thing, this virtual conference, and then he just announces the the boss of Nominate, right, we're shutting that forum down. And it happened literally while he was on the call. It, it just seems, I, I don't want to use the word shady, but something isn't quite right here. I'll use it for you. It, it's sketchy, man. It's your typical sketchy domain name registrar shenanigans. I mean, they've been happening for decades. They will continue to. Yeah, it, it it's sketchy. Right. Well, but, you know, when it's the country's one, like, you know, Syra is just a, a charity that doesn't actually make money in Canada. Right, it's just there to make sure that .ca domains exist for the the cultural betterment of Canada, and so on. And I'm very glad they got rid of the rules where all domains used to be like your company name .city .province .ca and stuff. That was terrible. But um, like looking at Nominet stuff here, it's like 
they're supposed to be a nonprofit and they have this monopoly over the .uk top level domain uh, and they're making lots of money, but they're using that money to try to do commercial things, to enter different commercial markets. And they're like yeah. loading out 4 million pounds to prop up their plans uh, to do other stuff they got going on here. And then, oh, our CEO got a 30% pay bump and now makes 600,000 pounds a year. Yeah. None of this sounds at all like the final days of VeriSign as a monopoly registrar. So, you know. <laughs> yep. Sorry, guys. I'm just back to, you know, it's it's another day and more of the same. You know, this is nothing that we have not seen before. This is just kind of how the shenanigans boil down. Um, going back to an earlier thing about GoDaddy's market share, I actually looked it up and... Um, I don't have the exact market share, but what I can tell you is that right now GoDaddy has uh, 61.2 million domains, which is more than six times as many as the closest competitor, which is two cows with 9.8 million. Yeah. Uh, Namecheap is right behind them with 8.8 million. Yeah. Namecheap's who I use. Yeah. Same here. And two cows is what almost everybody else uses and doesn't know it because every other generic fly-by-night, you know, registrar reseller you've ever heard of is using two cows on the back end. Yeah. And then they have their uh, direct one now, hover.com is two cows. And two cows is also uh, what ting.com, the phone carrier, and they own something else. Yeah. Which is really amusing considering that the whole point of the company is it was the ultimate collection of windsocks downloads or whatever, whatever two cows works out to stand for. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The ultimate collection of windsock software back at the very early days of, you know, having TCP IP sockets on Windows. Back when I was so larval form, I didn't know why it was windsock and just thought that was a weird name. I remember that. Like, what? Why are you telling me I have to install a sock on my computer? What? This is (laughs) dumb. That reminds me of a Mac address, but I have a PC. Yeah. Uh, the question for people of the UK about what to do about Nominate is do you go for something more like the Canadian model of, of, of Zero where you make it, you know, where there's not really money involved to the same degree? Uh, where So you can hopefully have less of this kind of corruption and, and more just, yeah. There's not many decisions to be made about running a TLD. Like, I don't know what they vote about very often, but it should definitely be based on people who own domain names and maybe people shouldn't get more than one vote. Yep. Or at least some kind of proportional thing. Or do you just unlock it and try to make it commercial entities? But we've just seen that go terribly. And, you know, ICANN has similar problems like we saw when they were about to sell off the .org uh, TLD stuff and make a, a mess there. And, you know, the cash grab we've seen with all these new generic TLDs when they decided that they'll just start selling dot whatever you want for enough money. It doesn't seem like that creates value for anyone else other than... Uh, domain squatters or big companies like Google that are willing to fork out the money to have their own TLD. The problem is we're not going to sort this out because we've got a few other things to sort out first in this country, (laughs) especially the thing that's looming at the end of the year. Are things not going well over there, Joe? They've been better, I must say. (laughs) Everything's going great over here in the USA. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog the unified monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. Quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers in real time with customizable dashboards and troubleshoot Linux issues in seconds with a unified view of your metrics, traces, and logs all in one place. With integrations for over 400 technologies, 
You can even use Datadog to monitor key Linux source metrics alongside data from the rest of your stack to get full visibility into the health and performance of your entire infrastructure. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins. All right, well, before we get to the free consulting, if you want to get in contact with us and ask questions for Jim and Alan, then show at 2.5admins.com is the best way. You can support creation of these episodes on Patreon. There's details for that at 2.5admins.com. And thank you, everyone, who is supporting us. It is really appreciated. And for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And we've also set a Patreon goal of $500. And when we get to that, we will start releasing these episodes weekly. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be recording weekly. We'll record two every two weeks and then release them every week. So get on Patreon and support us and make that happen if you want more of this show. So free consulting then. Chris writes to us, I've seen a ton of information floating around about the block size people use for their DD invocations, and I question whether half of it is correct. Does block size ever determine whether a given DD operation will work or not, or are we always talking about the throughput optimization in making this choice? Now, this really jumped out at me because I always just default to 1 million, so I, I'm about to be schooled on whether I should uh, change that. Uh, one meg's a little low. Um, so when you're using DD, A, I would argue, just stop using DD. Just stop it. There are better tools. For example, uh, PV has pretty much entirely replaced DD for me because it's like DD only. It just works, plus you get a progress bar and everything. Um, but if you're using DD, you're going to want to specify a large block size so that uh, things will you know complete faster. I usually recommend four megs. Um, you start seeing the uh, throughput increases taper off beyond that, but they will very quickly start, you know, dropping down below four megs. Even one meg is frequently considerably, you know, slower. And in those few instances where you might have some other concern, you're like, well, I just want the operation to complete. That implies that you're talking about damaged media and you really shouldn't be using DD at all for that. Most likely you should be using something like DD rescue. The only time where you can actually get the operation that will not succeed is going too small. For example, if you have a 4K native disk that's real 4K native and doesn't emulate 512, if you try to read the default block size of the 512 bytes, it will fail because you have to read an entire sector. Uh, and especially for writing, you can have the same thing. But as far as going up, there's generally not uh, a problem there because the device you're writing to, the OS is going to take care of that. For most devices inside the kernel, it's actually never going to do more than 128K at once like to DMA to the, to the device driver. But by doing the larger chunks in DD, you get a lot more speed because you're making fewer calls to the read and write syscall, which especially since the, the you know meltdown inspector vulnerabilities and so on, where we had to add more checking to that boundary between user space and the kernel, that the cost of each of those has gone up. So doing a four meg one instead of a million four kilobyte ones means you're saving a lot of that overhead. And again, I'll just mention that it's tremendously easier to just use PV. I mean, even if you don't care about the actual progress bar, which is weird because this is usually a really large operation that'll take some time. If you use PV, you don't have to worry about specifying the block size. You can just say PV lesser than SDA greater than SDB. 
to move all the stuff from dev SDA to dev SDB. That's it. You don't need to specify a block size or any of the other crap. PV is using a block size. You know what it is? PV is actually dynamically adapting, I believe. Um, but the the short version is you cannot make DD go faster than PV does. Right. But I just have muscle memory for DD now. And that's because I flash a lot of Linux ISOs onto a USB drive so that I can check out distros. So stop doing that. Use PV instead. On BSDs, DD has a little bit less of this issue because you can press Control T to get the current progress. Uh, but since FreeBSD 12, you can also add status equals progress to the command line and it will give you... Yeah, well, that's what I use, but that's pretty much useless because it just finishes really quickly usually and then you just have to wait for it to sync. Uh, so I, that is just useless. With PV, do you not have that problem then? Uh, it all depends on how the thumb drive is mounted. And most of the time, yes, you will have a similar problem. Right. Okay. I mentioned there's a flag for PV to do something like FIO's end F-sync, where it would do it all async, but do an F-sync at the end so it doesn't actually exit until it's done. That's exactly what it does already. Okay. That is the problem because the progress bar doesn't do you any good because the progress bar goes whoop 100% and then you stare at it, yeah. you know, not returning you a cursor for the next, you know, minute and a half. <laughs> uh, that must be a Linux thing. Yeah, and you're kind of looking at the flash drive to make sure it's flashing the the LED on it to make sure you haven't accidentally done it over the wrong drive. Assuming your flash drive has one of those. Um, another pro tip, um, instead of or if you don't have the LED on the drive to indicate activity, I will very frequently pull up, um, you know, IOSTAT with it with a watch command and just be like, all right, I still see data going onto that drive. You know, once I see that stop, then we have some idea what's going on. Why are you wrapping IOSTAT in watch? If you just put a number at the end of IOSTAT, it'll keep printing out. And the difference is the very first invocation of IOSTAT prints the total amount done since boot. And so running it via watch is going to keep giving you the total, not actually show you how much it's doing. Like Yeah, yeah. Teach your grandma how to suck eggs, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to go to my blog, you can find the entire invocation to get a proper, you know, watch N1 IOSTAT uh, HXY11 that skips the first, you know, since boot time thing that you're talking about. Uh -huh. And the difference is that you're not just, you know, looking at something that looks like some kid programmed it in 1980, you know, print stats 20, you know, go to 10. Uh, rather than just scrolling crap up the screen, you actually have like a full updating, you know, it, it looks like a proper application. Ah, so it's, it's like the GSTAT command on FreeBSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you okay. can do IOSTAT that way and you can watch all devices at once. And instead of it, you know, being all janky and going up your screen in weird blocks, right. like it just stays in the same place and the numbers change. Yeah, so like GSTAT. Okay, I'll have to go look at that because the other time I have to use Linux, I miss having something that actually does GSTAT like that. <laughs> We'll make Joe put the link to uh, that uh, how-to on my blog in the show notes. As long as you put it in this doc, I will. What doc? Docs don't exist. There's no such thing as a show doc. Stop gaslighting me. <laughs> but yes, to summarize, one or four megs is probably fine for DD, and the only way you can break it is trying to go too small. And if your version of Linux complains about you not using a capital M when specifying four megabytes, yell at somebody to update to a less ancient version of GNU Core Utils so that you can use a lowercase m to mean megabytes instead of it just saying there's no such thing as one M. I don't know which GNU programmer caused that. I punched them in the face. It's fixed on, on newer GNU Core Utils, but I don't know why it was ever a thing. Yeah, because I knew that on a, on a Mac, you don't have to, because that's like BSD style. Yep. If it meant something different, 
that maybe would make sense. Like if it did mega bits or something. But why require the uppercase? You don't require it for kilobytes. Because argument parsing is hard, Helen. But they do a lowercase for kilobytes, but uppercase for megabytes? Because a lowercase m is milli and an uppercase m is mega. Sure. It's basic SI unit stuff, man. But we're not using SI units, Joe. No, we're doing powers of two. You can't have negative. Oh, yeah. Damn it. <laughs> so you should, have to, you should have to do capital M lowercase i. That's the only correct answer. Make you literally type out maybe bytes. <laughs> yeah, the whole word. You know what? Yeah, absolutely. Forget abbreviations. Type the whole thing out. Do not typo it. Oh dear. Right. Well, before this descends into any other madness, we better get out of here. Remember, you can send the emails show at 2.5admins.com. Send your questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. You can find me on Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in two weeks.